Welcome to the third bonus episode of the Sustainable Carolina podcast. I'm Abigail Brewer, Communications and Engagement Specialist with Sustainable Carolina. In this episode, we'll hear from two centers within the UNC Institute for the Environment. First, we'll talk with Megan Lane at the Center for Public Engagement with Science. Then, we'll turn to Sarav Aranashlam with the Center for Environmental Modeling for Policy Development. The Center for Public Engagement with Science, or CPES, is a unique group within the UNC Institute for the Environment. Megan Lane works as the center's public science and internship coordinator. I'm Megan Lane, and I'm super excited to be talking with you today about the Center for Public Engagement with Science. We work with faculty, staff, and students on campus to take their research and bring it out into the community so that action can be taken on the research um, into North Carolina communities and beyond. One of these projects connecting the public with research not just here in North Carolina but internationally is the Lake Observations by Citizen Scientists and Satellites Project. The NASA-funded project connects research from UNC Chapel Hill's Department of Earth, Marine, and Environmental Sciences with CPES. Tamlin Pavelski is the principal investigator for the project. On the CPES side, Sarah Yelton worked on the project for a few years. Currently, Megan Lane and Grant Parkins are the CPES team members working on the project. The volume of water in a lake is affected by several factors, including precipitation, water table height, and evaporation. The Lake Observations by Citizen Scientists and Satellites project looks to understand how the volume of water in lakes changes over time. We take um, lake gauges, which are like meter-sized rulers, and we put them in a, a lake, lakes around the world, People who are walking by or paddling by in their boat can text the measurement into our website. We collect our data, it's instantaneous, and we pair that data with satellite imagery to learn about how the lake uh, volume is changing over time comparing to the other lakes around it. If you were on UNC Chapel Hill's campus earlier this spring, you might remember a lot of excitement around NASA's surface water and ocean topography satellite launch. That's because Pavelski has been the hydrology lead on that mission since 2013, before he arrived at UNC Chapel Hill. This satellite will provide a comprehensive set of data on Earth's surface water and help us understand how climate change and human activities impact these systems. That satellite is already collecting data for this project. In fact, from April 1st through June 30th of this year, citizens were encouraged to input lake data as often as possible in order to validate data coming from the SWAT that had launched earlier in the year. In addition to this funding from NASA, CPES is also part of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences Superfund Research Program. Andrew George, is um, sharing water quality results as part of our Well Empowered study. This study is part of the Superfund Research Program in the Gilling School of Global Public Health. Our current iteration of the study is taking place in Union County, where we have sent bottles to to residents of the county, and they have taken samples to sample their well water. The Center for Public Engagement with Science has strong representation within UNC Chapel Hill's SRP program. Andrew George, Megan Lane, Sarah Yelton, and Kathleen Gray all work within the realm of community engagement and or research translation for the project. 
A big part of this project is educating residents on why they should test their well water. And one big reason for that is because well water is held to different standards than public drinking water. So it's important that they know what they're drinking, especially if it's not clean or safe for them to be drinking. After they get their samples, we help them understand uh, their results because they can oftentimes be pretty confusing. And we want them to know um, if they do have contamination, what can they do about it? What are the health impacts and what are the solutions? We have plans to um, move into other counties in, in North Carolina as well. In addition to this current work with Union County and plans to expand to other counties in North Carolina, the Well-Empowered study conducted an initial pilot study in Stokes County, just north of Winston-Salem. This study found that with an intervention, like a water filter, arsenic and lead contamination could be removed from well water at a low cost. The idea Lane mentioned earlier about helping the public understand the significance of results is at the core of the Center for Public Engagement with Science's work. We also work closely with um, environmental and health agencies uh, to communicate risk. Recently, the CPES team conducted focus groups with Spanish-speaking participants to get their feedback about science related to fish consumption. This project is part of a larger piece of work that's led by Dr. Kathleen Gray. She's a, um, one of the leading experts on environmental health literacy, and that is highlighted in this project. A case study by Gray from 2020 involved local and state agencies, nonprofit organizations, academics, and anglers. That study found that by avoiding jargon and using more pictures can make for more effective signage. But it's not just on this higher university level that the center is working to mitigate the health effects of contamination. They also work with teachers and students to shed light on topics of emerging concern. We work with classroom teachers and informal educators. Uh, so this is a neat project where um, the teachers are co-developing curriculum on uh, PFAS science, that research coming from the university, and trying to make it engaging for their students, their high school students. So this is part of a program called Iterative uh, Design to Engage All or Ideal Learners. And when students are better informed, they are more likely to share this information with their parents and friends they also might become interested in pursuing research topics like this as undergraduate students. Gen X is an example of a PFAS. There are thousands of these chemicals. They're emerging. We don't know like anything about some of them. And then some of them we know a little bit about. Um, but that makes it kind of challenging for us to communicate about PFAS with lay audiences. Um, and that's why this is really cool that these teachers are learning about this science and teaching their students about it so then they'll be more informed at an earlier age and can share that information with their families, their peers. To end the conversation, Lane took it back to UNC Chapel Hill's campus to talk about the ways the Unique Center engages undergraduate students. We engage with undergraduates at UNC in two different ways. Um, the first is through research experiences. Um, within labs. Um, so this picture is showing a researcher um, guiding a student through um, a research experiment and that's through our increasing diversity and enhancing academia program. Um, this program not only gives students experience working in a lab but also prepares them for graduate school if that's something they want to do in a, in a STEM field. And then the other way we engage undergraduates is through um, internships, through the Eco Studio program, 
Um, this program is co-directed by myself and Brian Ness. We work with a lot of different organizations and get students into those organizations so they can get some real-world experience. We spent the first half of this episode talking about water, one type of fluid, but now let's switch to another fluid, air. Here's Sarav Aranashlam. We do a lot of different model development, model applications for different activities to support environmental policymaking. There was a major proposal from the Biden administration, the EPA, um, looking at uh, vehicular emissions and a proposed rulemaking to address vehicles to decarbonize the fleet. That particular rule talks about carbon emissions, and we want to decarbonize the vehicular sector quite a bit. But when you decarbonize um, vehicular emissions, there's a substantial other aspect of that, which is cleaning up the air from the tailpipe exhaust from other pollutants, which goes on to form um, air pollution and then affect human health in the short term. So it's a substantial benefit that comes from decarbonizing vehicles, which improves public health from the air that you and I breathe. At the end of 2022, the EPA adopted a rule titled Control of Air Pollution from New Motor Vehicles, Heavy-Duty Engine and Vehicle Standards. Beginning with model year 2027, heavy-duty vehicles and engines will be under stricter standards. The Biden announcement that Aaron Ashlam mentioned came out in April 2023. It announced public and private commitments to transition to electric vehicles. The announcement includes details for infrastructure to support medium and heavy-duty electric vehicles. As you will hear in Aaron Ashlam's discussion, he zoomed in on New York City to look at how air quality might be improved through the adoption of two different electric vehicle policies. This is work being done collaboratively with a couple of different entities, uh, specifically Environmental Defense Fund, a fairly large advocacy group in the U.S., and then two other schools of public health who assisted with the bulk of the um, health data that we used in the study. If you look at the U.S., uh, about one-fifth of every American lives next to a major highway. Uh, when I say next to a major highway, it's within the first 100 meters or so. That's the number that we have. So uh, quite a lot of people living right next to highway. But if you look at some of the very large uh, populated counties like Los Angeles or New York, you may have more than two out of every four people or one out of two people living next to a major highway. And then why is it important? Um, traffic emissions pollution drops off very sharply next to highways, so capturing this first couple of hundred meters in terms of what the gradient is of air pollution is very important, and that's where a lot of people live. In the United States, transportation is responsible for an increasingly large amount of emissions. Emissions go on to create compounds like nitrogen oxides, volatile organic compounds, ozone, and fine particulate matter that can all be harmful to human health. But then from this sector, the heavy-duty vehicles pollute fairly disproportionately. Fairly large um, amount of emissions, but then they're very small percent of the total fleet. 3% of the fleet having 40% of on-road mobile emissions. So the objective of the study is to quantify the distribution of air quality health benefits of medium heavy-duty trucks in New York and Atlanta. I'll focus just here in New York City. And then to look at the um, quantification of these differences across neighborhoods, census tracts, population subgroups, and so on by various uh, population uh, demographic subgroups. Looking at two different maps of New York City, one containing truck data and the other superimposed with data on the number of asthma ER visits in children, you can see a correlation. But then if you look at the health incidence, um, children in communities of color and low wealth have fairly high rates of asthma. So this talks a little bit about the environmental justice that is um, quite a bit of um, uh, attention in the news of late. We saw that the asthma-rated ED visits or emergency department visits of children, young children, 
were more than five times higher in high poverty New York City neighborhoods compared to low poverty neighborhoods. Okay, so you have a fairly large baseline incidence of asthma in these poor neighborhoods. So we want to look at how potential fleet electrification may benefit or not uh, when you have um, differences in baseline health incidence and uh, compared to truck activity. On to the study's policy scenarios that Arun Ashlam's team modeled. The team compared two different scenarios to the baseline. The first scenario looked at what would happen if all sales of heavy-duty trucks and buses were for electric trucks and buses by 2040. This means that there would still be some non-electric trucks and buses on the road. The second, more aggressive scenario looked at what would happen if every single truck and bus on the road was electric by 2040. Modeling approach for this is basically an approach where we start with looking at the transportation options. You look at the travel activity, and then you get emissions factors to see how many emissions uh, of different pollutants there from these trucks on a per um, kilometer per mile basis. Then the last part, which you see beyond AQ, is the air quality modeling piece, which my group um, does a lot of. And what it shows is our modeling framework, which basically was able to estimate um, air pollution in, these, uh, in, in the city for these two pollutants at a very, very fairly small or granular fashion. Uh, and basically, if you look at the city, uh, we divide the city into about 2,000 or so census tracts. That's the number of tracts we have in New York City. We're able to estimate air pollution every tract, and that's the level of detail we have in the modeling. Then we moved on to look at the scenario, the second scenario that I mentioned, to see what will happen if you move to a 2040-based electrification of the truck fleet. And this is a difference plot showing the differences in fine particles on the left and of NO2 on the right to show how much PM or NO2 is reduced. And you can see that actually the roads pop up much better on these plots because you're basically removing the emissions of these um, uh, trucks in, on these roads. And what we saw was across the city, based upon this policy option, there's fairly wide variation in distribution of air pollution benefits from these trucks across the census tract. Because you can't see these maps of New York City that Arun Ashlam is talking about, I will describe them to you briefly. For the two scenarios, Arun Ashlam presented two maps each. The first map provides an estimate of the particulate matter, with low amounts shown in dark purple, medium amounts in pink, and high amounts in yellow. The second map estimates nitrogen oxide with the same color scale. The levels appear highest in Manhattan, but the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens appear to have some elevated levels in certain areas as well. The important thing to note here is that the air pollution is not just confined to the highways. Under the second scenario, in which there are only electric trucks and buses on the roads, the maps look dramatically different. Most of the maps are a dark purple color, with only the highways appearing in those pink and yellow hues. The idea here is that by switching to electric vehicles, there are air quality benefits. Suddenly, particulate matter and nitrogen oxide are confined to the highways and don't infiltrate the areas surrounding those highways where people are living as much. Through this modeling, Arun Ashlam found that about 23% of total nitrogen oxide impacts could be avoided by this type of electrification. These have a fairly significant improvement in the ability to model uh, disparities in transportation air quality benefits. What we said was you need to look at this much more finer resolution, finer granularity, and showed how the benefits vary across different subpopulations based on population demographics. The medium heavy duty vehicle electrification will have significant air pollution in New York City.